The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Dan Roth, Editor-in-Chief at LinkedIn, and welcome to This Is Working, a show where I talk with people who have an outsized impact on our world. And with me, as always, I have my producer, Laura. Hey, Dan. I am very excited for today's show. Why are you so excited? I like economics. All right. Well, then you are in luck because we have a very important person in economics here today, Christine Lagarde. She is the presumptive head of the European Central Bank. She would take over the role starting in November. So tell me a little bit about her background. One important thing to know about Christine is that she's not an economist. So you're going to hear a lot about economics, but not from an economist. She started as a lawyer. She became the French finance minister and most recently has been the head of the IMF. But in this new role, she'll be stepping onto the biggest stage yet. And she's been on a lot of big stages. Now, when you listen to this interview, you'll hear Christine talk a lot about the economy. One important thing to know is that it's the economy in 2017 she's talking about. That's when we taped this interview. Even so, you can hear how she thinks about big macro trends. She'll talk a lot about the experts that she turns to for advice and the kind of topics that she wants to tackle, especially corruption. A lot of really interesting things to say around corruption. And with that, here's the interview with Christine. Uh, Madam Lagarde, thank you for joining us here. It's great to have you in the studio. You are in New York talking to world leaders and you're looking at the state of the global economy. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing signs of positive changes everywhere? What, when you look around, what do you think looks good and where do you see signs of worry? Well, I have one good indicator. Are we revising our forecast up or down? And for the last six years, we've been revising our forecast down. So whatever we forecasted was overly optimistic. We are now revising upwards, and we've done that for at least uh, three times. (laughs) So that tells me that um, the recovery is uh, certain. What we are seeing in the numbers is that it is well spread across the advanced emerging and low-income countries. uh, And we're also seeing it reasonably well balanced. It's clearly coming out of uh, Europe, of Japan, from the United States, but a little bit less than what we had expected. Uh, The the UK is not uh, in strong recovery mode for all sorts of uncertainties that uh, loom on their horizon, but we are seeing a much stronger momentum for that recovery. There are signs of of recovery everywhere, Mm -hmm. but people also talk about that within the economies, there are recoveries happening among the top 10% Mm -hmm. and the bottom 90%, at least in advanced economies, might not be feeling that recovery. Mm -hmm. Do you dive down into those levels? We, we, have, we look at the, the macro numbers, which is always um, you know, more convenient in a way, but we also have to look within each country at where that growth is, uh, who benefits, uh, what programs should be in place, what social safety net should be um, promoted in the country, uh, how much um, more should be budgeted for health, for education. And, uh, and we are seeing um, issues which have to do with the transformation of the labor market, which have to do with uh, the uh, supply chains, which have to do with international trade. And I'm saying those three in sort of descending order, uh, where some people in the advanced economies have not seen the benefit of globalization, have not seen the benefit of the transformation of the, the workplace. 
and governments, policymakers have to adjust and have to care particularly for those people. When you look at the incredible drop in global poverty, and the IMF's had a mm -hmm. big hand in making that happen, and then you hear in advanced economies people complaining about their state in life, what's going on with their economies, feeling like the country is not the one they recognize, mm -hmm. and the rise of economic nationalism. How do you think about that from an IMF perspective? Don't you want to say to them, everything is so much better, why are you complaining? Or do you understand where they're coming from? No, we understand where they're coming from. But um, we have to keep a cool head and see both the benefits and the downside of what has happened in the last 30 years. And the benefits, you mentioned them. Uh, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And uh, that, that's a huge uh, plus. But it's not going to have any effect on those who are losing their jobs because of automation, robotization, uh, transformation of their workplace. Uh, it's not going to be of any help to those people whose factory is closing down because the manufacturing cycle is moving somewhere else. So we have to be mindful of benefits on the one hand, the downside and how the downsides can be addressed uh, by very special programs in order to help people adjust to that new economy of ours. Does the, do you take that into consideration when you're planning programs in different countries? Do you think about this question of helping different parts of the economy? How do you structure things to make sure that you can look at this micro level or understand how different, different uh, people within each country are going to react to an IMF policy? Mm. Well, the first thing that we have to look at is how do we reestablish stability? How do we restore public finance so that the country is capable of financing itself, capable of attracting investment, and capable of creating jobs? Because our mission is financial and economic stability and prosperity. So that's, and if you don't have a stable base from which to work, it's, it's not worth focusing on, on very specific issues. Once that is stabilized, then we have to obviously recommend what we call the social safety net. Mm -hmm. uh, are there programs that are targeted for the poorest in the country? Is the, the country spending enough uh, budget on health and educa education? So those are the things that we have in mind when we, when we help a country with a program. You, you're in New York and you were talking a little bit about corruption, mm -hmm. tax evasion. This is an area that you are starting to steer the IMF toward. I'm curious why you've decided this is something the IMF needs to to fight. Obviously, we've had corruption for as long as there have yeah. been countries and before then. Why now? We have been um, looking at it and trying to address issues of tax evasion, um, corruption for the last so many years. I think what we're seeing now is a different approach, which is uh, helped by the surge of civil society, by the uh, added transparency caused by more data, more information, uh, more access. You see, because corruption flourishes in the dark, in the shadows. With more data, more figures, more numbers, more, more, more interferences, uh, more whistleblowing as well we have better access to things that were deliberately hidden from us. So I think that that's an element that is pushing us into doing more than we have in the past. This is under review. Uh, we clearly need to improve uh, our ways of dealing with it. 
But I can tell you something. Whenever it is macro-critical, whenever it is um, a break on growth, whenever it's an impediment, uh, we react, we address. And there have, been, there have been instances where we had to just stop a program. You know, when we find out that, for instance, a government is hiding off budget, off special purpose vehicles, in the dark, um, use of public finance for private purposes or for strange purposes, when we find out, we just stop the program. We say, terribly sorry, but unless and until that comes to the surface, we are not going to continue to um, help the country. So we cannot take a political judgment as to, you know, particular orientation, uh, political views, because this is not our mission, we cannot do that. But when things are hidden, or when things are diverted from where they were intended to be, then our responsibility is to react and sometimes to just stop financing, because it's international financing and, and money, and we cannot participate in, in uh, corruption. And how do the governments react when you They don't that? like it. <laughs> they don't like it. Um, uh, you know, we, we do that in the area of pure corruption. We do that in the area of uh, money laundering. And we have had programs of anti-money laundering uh, for the last 20 years. And we have served uh, many, many countries with technical assistance. We have helped banks track down money laundering and the financing of, of terrorism in order to help them stop it. Um, but sometimes people don't, don't like it. So in most instances, particularly with anti-money laundering and, the, uh, and trying to stop the financing of terrorism, governments want it. They ask us, they, they tell us, you know, come and, come and help because uh, there are very devious things happening and we want to understand and be able to catch them. One of the other areas that you've recently been focused on is fintech, is of new technologies available to handle the um, collecting and spread of money and artificial intelligence so you can use to track exactly what's going on. When you think about how fintech works within this question about um, corruption, doesn't fintech also allow countries Allow, doesn't fintech also allow people, though, to be able to ev uh, evade tax collectors? Sure. Couldn't that eventually make the problem worse? Sure. You know, f fintech is a big, um, is a big, big bag word. Right. And in that bag, you find the fintechs for good and the fintechs for bad. It's oversimplifying the issue, but you know, when, when, when. Artificial intelligence, data mining, distributed ledger technologies, artificial intelligence are sort of bundled together in order to address the issue of correspondent banking relationships. To prevent a country from being cut off from the international finance, financing system, that's great. That is, that is helping. Um, when you have um, women in Kenya having the benefit of a, a credit record and credit history, enabling them to have slightly bigger loans in order to finance their small businesses. That's fintech for good. Mm -hmm. um, but when you have uh, fintech being used as an out of the regulatory box channel to move money around that is not legitimate, that's not great. 
So the difficulty with fintech is to try to stay on the top of those multiple technologies and great innovators to make sure that there is as much fintech for good as is possible and no fintech for bad. Do you think governments, especially in developing countries, are ready to regulate and monitor what's going on with some of these advanced technologies in their country? I think it's an issue for all governments, uh, not just developing countries. I think the advanced economies, the emerging markets, and the, uh, the low-income countries are all at, um, at risk of not anticipating, not supervising, not being on the top of those technologies. And I think it's, it, it should be a common endeavor between the private sector, the innovators, the disruptors, and the authorities to make sure that all that all those innovations operate within a framework that avoids the bad fintechs. Does the IMF play a role in providing that education? Do you think we, that you need we to try? Yeah. We try very much. So uh, we have um, a group of fintech experts within the organization. Uh, we have reached out to um, uh, financial disruptors, and uh, they are advising us as well. And we are a great forum where we can convene the various operators uh, in order to actually debate those issues and, and see what is the best way to both promote and, and, and guard against um, the abuse. Would you talk about how you get up to speed on these topics? What's the process for becoming an expert? <laughs> I'm no expert. <laughs> you know, first of all, that's disclaimer number one. Number two, I try, I try to listen to those who are experts. And I try to uh, absorb as much as I can. Typically, my experts uh, use jargonic language. So very often, I have to say, stop. You know, what, what are you actually saying? You know, please use very simple words. Uh, regard me as the dumb idiot mm -hmm. who wants to understand, who wants to know. And generally, when uh, my experts appreciate that uh, I want to understand, the language changes. The jargonic vocabulary goes away, and then suddenly it becomes understandable. How do you find experts? We have quite a few of them. Uh, we have really top-notch economists. Uh, we have uh, lots of young people as well who are geeks in their own way and, uh, and can marry uh, new techniques and new technologies and the economy, so they are helpful uh, in, in multiple ways. And I, I spend time, you know, hearing, listening, participating in conferences, reading a lot. Mm -hmm. I have had my, my lot of reading over the last seven years that I've been at the IMF. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, 
I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, uh, the IMF's charter enables it to go anywhere, do anything to develop economies. Almost everywhere. Almost everywhere. How do you pick, when you have that big of a, the ability to do anything, how do you pick what you are going to do? Well, first of all, we have, we were an institution set up 70 years ago with a particular mission. So the first thing we need to do is deliver on the mission and identify as the world changes, as the economy evolves, as new technologies come in, as um, micro issues become macro critical, uh, or new matters uh, become of paramount importance then we have to constantly adjust our lenses. And we cannot just look at the, the public finance or the fiscal aspect of an economy. We have to look beyond that. We have to enlarge the horizon because so many, so many issues, so many problems become macro-critical. Take um, inequality, for instance. Take uh, gender participation. Uh, female participation in the, in the labor force. Uh, take climate change and its impact on fiscal. Uh, take corruption, you know, bribery alone, 1.5 to 2 trillion dollars. So uh, we have to be open-minded while delivering on the mission. So the mission is financial and economic stability and prosperity. But if we don't pay attention to inequality, then countries could fall into a terrible spiral of disintegration, which leads to economic chaos. If we don't pay attention to female labor force participation, we lose out because half the population is underemployed, overexploited, underpaid, and talent is, wait is wasted. If we don't pay attention to climate change, some countries are going to continue to subsidize fossil fuel burning. So that's what we need to do. Okay, those are massive, all massive programs. Yeah. You must have people inside the IMF and you have governments coming to you saying, we need the IMF here. Mm -hmm. Or people saying, this is my project, we're doing really well, we, I need more funding for it. In a case where you, have, you don't have unlimited resources, right. how are you making the decisions on what's the best place to take the IMF? We have uh, three business lines, if you will. One is surveillance, and annually we have to go under the skin of each economy of our 189 members. That's our commitment number one. Commitment number two, uh, we have to provide lending. We never finance, we, uh, we never give grants. Uh, we never um, finance projects. We provide lending to a country that is going in complete uh, financial disarray, uh, has a major balance of payment, payment issue, and cannot finance itself on the, on the markets. 
at that point we have a duty to that country, if that country asks for it, to go and help in consideration for that country's commitment to redress its situation, to improve its public finance. That's our obligation number two. Our commitment number three is to provide technical assistance and training to those countries that want to prevent that from happening. And we do that as well. So we don't pick and choose. We have commitments and uh, the only thing we can do is negotiate with the countries in trouble what they think they can do in order to respond to the international community uh, urge for them to sort out their situation. So within those three buckets, you feel like y you know exactly how how these programs are going to start and how they end, and it's not uh, a question of I wish. <laughs> how, how do you how do you handle ending? What do, what do you? It must be easier to get started on something than yeah. decide you're no longer in. Yeah, it. yeah. Because what's critical in the in a program implementation is political ownership. We can design the best program in the world, have the best hypotheticals and and modelization, if there is no political will and ownership that is determined by the leadership and shared within the, uh, the country, it's going to be very difficult to end successfully the program. Mm. So we go at it again and, and, uh, and again and again. What about internally? And maybe the IMF doesn't work this way, but are there pet projects or people saying they fall in love with something, they're working on something, they just need a, another year, they need a little bit more support, and you have to make a decision. Is this something that the IMF is gonna continue to be involved in? Or does that not happen? You know, in our research department, um, occasionally some researchers will say, well, this is critically important, and it's not, we're not there yet. They have that space to actually pursue their research and conduct more work and, and, and demonstrate that, yes, it is macrocritical, and yes, we should be handling that. Mm -hmm. there, is, there is that, there's a degree of flexibility. Uh, not a lot, and they would like to have a lot more, but hey, we have our mission as well. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk to you about, you, you, you had to give an interesting speech about, you've talked a lot about gender and gender mm -hmm. parity, and you brought up the idea of gender budgeting. Mm -hmm. This is something a lot of mm -hmm. countries do, but I don't think a lot of people are familiar with it. Can you explain what it means and why you think this is something that everyone should be adopting? First of all, I think that um, you have to measure things as much as possible in, in, in order to, to improve the situation and in order to continue the policy that you have decided. So if you decide that, if, if, a, if a government, for instance, decides that it wants to have more talent around the table or it has to deal with its demographic issues, such as aging, and women are the answer, uh, it needs to spend money and it needs to identify in each and every ministries, what will be actually conducive to increasing the number of women, increasing their contribution to the economy, giving them better access to finance, making sure that there are enough child, child care centers and that they are properly budgeted, making sure that there are not too many licenses and, and, and hurdles to stop women from uh, accessing the job market. And that requires within each and every ministry to identify what measures will actually have a gender positive output. That's jargonic, is he not good? Um, but you know, if, if they decide that a particular budget will increase uh, the childcare centers opening hours, that is positive mm -hmm. because it means that women will be able to have more flexibility, stay a bit longer at work, not necessarily take a part-time job, but have a full-time job. 
and on and on. And that can be done within each and every ministry. If you take the transportation ministry, for instance, having uh, Wagen, what do you call it, uh, tra- um, the, in, in the trains, you have the cars, the cars of the train that are properly laid out so that women feel comfortable going to work. That's, gen- that's gender positive. Huh. And you have seen this work in countries. This has brought a, a positive impact in, in, in decreasing um, gender gaps. Uh, whenever barriers, hurdles, legal discriminations are removed, uh, it, it changes the female labor participation. Uh, in the job market and in the economy, and sometimes it reduces the gender gap in terms of compensation. We've seen that in many different countries around the world, yes. Uh, would love to understand your own career, how you think about your, your path. You, did, you, you started as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You have moved well beyond law. Does this, did you always know what you wanted to do, or do you think in long sweeps, this is where I want to be in 15 years, this is where I want to be in five years? How, how, have, you, uh, how have you forged your own path? Uh, very randomly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's, it's, it's been more uh, the result of um, the right time, the right person, um, What do you mean the right person? Well, it's often been a question of uh, circumstances. You know, I was, I, was, I was determined to be a lawyer because I wanted to fight the death penalty. Now, when I became a lawyer, the death penalty had been removed from, from the French uh, legal arsenal. So that part of my uh, career uh, ambition was gone. So I became a business lawyer and I had uh, prepared myself for that. Um, but then after that, gradually, I moved into management. Um, and the firm was not doing well. And they, the policy committee at the time um, of the largest law firm in the world, Baker McKenzie, uh, asked me if I would consider becoming the chairman after having been on the executive committee for three years. And when I'm saying it was the right time, for, for me, it was just the right time. And, uh, and I decided to just leave my client base, uh, ask my partners to give a hand and, uh, and make the decision. Did you have any doubt about doing that? No, and I was, I was probably uh, unbelievably um, presumptuous in, in saying yes and taking the risk. And the same happened when, uh, when I was recruited by uh, uh, the French president uh, and prime minister to join the government in France. I just you know, packed my bag and, and left. Uh, with have you know with the support of my partners at uh, at the at the firm, and in a way the same was true again when you know I was uh, asked to join uh, the race for the um, managing director of the IMF position. So it's it's been one thing after the other, where circumstances prevailed. Uh, I met the right people, uh, had the right um, determination, and and just jumped took the risk and uh, I lost a, a great retirement plan when I left the partnership of Baker McKenzie. I was two years away from retirement and I could have relaxed easily with a nice pension. <laughs> but You didn't consider that at all? There was no, you know, no. big whiteboard you're drawing if no. I just stay? Uh, no. no, no, no. What do you recommend for people when they think about their own career? People must come to you for advice all the time. I think they should be prepared to change gear, to change path and to take risks. 
I think I think professional life is also about that. I'm sure that many of them sort of scheme and 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 determine and plan. I think you have to leave a little bit of space in your life to to random to uh, to the opportunity to uh, to the uh, the impulse. That that's been my life, but maybe it doesn't work for others. What do you think about private sector versus public sector? Ha. I've found uh, private sector to be far more um, efficient, uh, driven by uh, much narrower objectives. Uh, I mean, you essentially look at your bottom line, you look at satisfying uh, the various stakeholders, uh, beginning with the shareholders and, and the very many forces around uh, the entity that, uh, the ent whether it's a, a big company or a smaller enterprise, but it's, it's with a a rather narrow focus. It's not as sort of exhilarating and, and um, exciting in a way as, as public life work, where clearly there is, a, there is a bigger and bigger objective, higher mission, and not as much efficiency, uh, not as good time management, not as as much of a focus as there is in the private sector. But you can eventually um, use some of the techniques and the tools that you, you have developed or that you've learned from the private sector in public life, not always. So do you think that you benefit from having spent those years at Baker McKenzie? You know, I spent more than um, 25 years in the private sector. Um, yeah, 1980 to uh, 2005. So that's 25 years of, of intense training and, 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 and focus and being driven by the bottom line. Uh, and a slightly higher purpose because serving the law and, and making sure that the rule of law applies is, 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 I would say, something that takes you a little bit further. But yes, I have benefited from that, yeah. Madam Lagarde, thank you very much for coming here and spending the time. All right, that was Christine Lagarde, nominee for president of the European Central Bank. If you liked what you heard, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. Also, share what you liked about the show using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. You can follow me on LinkedIn and subscribe to my newsletter where you'll get constant updates about new material. I'm Dan Roth. Thanks for listening. This is Working is produced by me, Laura Sim, with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Dave Pond is our technical director. Florencia Iriondo is head of original video and audio. See you next week. <laughs>